1: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with designer Clement Mock about the early days of Apple Computer, the heady days of the software bubble, and the joys of working for Steve Jobs. We were called bozos. We were incompetent. There was nothing that we did that was uh, up to his standards. Here's Debbie Melmo.
0: Clement Mock has had an incredibly eclectic career. From his early days as a technology pioneer to today's totally digital companies employing thousands, Clement has staked out a role as a visionary entrepreneur and designer. Today he is the reason phrases such as experience design, information design, information architecture, interaction design, strategic design, interface design, and customer experience are part of our lexicon. In the early 80s, just a few years out of art school, Mach took a job at Apple Computer. As the creative director, he designed all aspects of the Mac experience, from packaging to manuals, and helped to develop the simple, friendly sensibility of the Mac that persists to this day. In 1988, Mock left Apple to create his own firm and went on to found several successful design-related businesses, which we're going to talk all about now. Clement Mock, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you, Debbie. So, I, I read an article where you stated that from the time you were very young, you knew that you wanted to do something creative and there was really no other alternative for you.
1: I want to be an architect. And I would take sheets, bed sheets, and I would build these sort of connected spaces between my bedroom into my brother's bedroom and then into the bathroom. So, it was just uh, it was a lot of fun making things.
0: So you trained as a graphic designer in the late 70s at Art Center College of Design in California, but immediately moved to New York City after you graduated. Right. Why is that?
1: It was important to me to work with mentors and masters. Uh, and New York had a disproportionate number of masters.
0: <laughs> and you've worked for quite a few of them. Um, you landed your first job at CBS's advertising and marketing department. Right. Working not only for Lou Dorfman, but also with Paula Cher.
1: But well, that was... P- Paula was, uh, was in the building, I guess. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, so she was in the building. That counts. That counts. <laughs> but that was only after you attempted to get a job with Massimo Vignelli. Right. So I, I want to know more about what happened with your interview with Massimo and how you ended up at CBS. Yeah,
1: okay. Um, when, I got right out, when I got out of Art Center, I, uh, the first person I called was Rita Sue Siegel. So the headhunter, the famous yep, headhunter. The famous headhunter. Head I wasn't even 21 at that point. And, um, and, I, of course, I had this list of people that I want to see. And it's Clement, you're not going to see these people. So um, I think I took it upon myself to um, drop off my portfolio at Massimo's office. And at that point in the 80s, Massimo would not see anybody. And I guess I had dropped off the portfolio in the morning... And by the afternoon, uh, at the end of the day, when I um, picked up my portfolio, Massimo wanted to see me. Wow! Yeah, I mean, I, I was just <laughs> floored. And actually sat down in his office, and, and Massimo was like, "So why don't you open your f- a firm? You're good enough." And it's like, "No, Massimo, I need to you know, learn from masters like you." And uh, Massimo was like, "You know," at that point, he wasn't. There wasn't even. I mean, Michael Beirut was uh, at Massimo's office at that point, and. He um, referred me to see Michael, uh, Michael Donovan and Nancy Green.
0: So, so you worked at CBS for a little over six months mm-hmm. and then found yourself suddenly back in a position to go and work for Michael Donovan and Nancy Green. How did that come about? How did that full circle happen?
1: I just sort of looked at where I was. Here I was six months, and um, I really didn't feel like my potential uh, was tapped. And I wasn't doing the kind of work that I thought I would be doing. So I called up Michael Donovan and said, Michael, remember remember the phone call that you got from Massimo about a young designer? And I got hired. <laughs>
0: Were you worried at that time that being at CBS for such a short amount of time would have uh, represented something negative on your resume?
1: There was that fear, certainly. But I, I think the fact that I started at CBS in 1980, and then I leaped into the position in May in 81... It sort of, I could create, fudge. yeah, I could fudge a bit, so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, I read that when you were working for Michael and Nancy that you said that working in a studio environment like theirs altered your perspective and opened your eyes to the different arenas of design you could be involved with mm-hmm. and no longer felt constrained or pigeonholed as any one type of designer. Yeah. How did they do that for you?
1: What sewed me on um, Michael and Nancy and, and what, what they were doing was, was this notion that the, um, they were not doing uh, graphic design. They were doing exhibit design. They were also doing multi-image shows. So not only did it sort of give me diversity, but an eye that, oh, you can actually cross different mediums. You can go from print to do multi-image shows to do exhibits, the sort of extension of an idea and how you can apply that across different things.
0: It seems like the experience allowed you in in some ways to realize that you didn't really have to be a subject expert, but that this way of design thinking mm-hmm. was a way of solving problems To any kind of endeavor, yeah,
1: it was really about asking questions and asking the right questions, and not be afraid that you don't know um, that you don't know.
0: I think that becoming a protege of sorts in a design studio for extremely worldly designers is an invaluable lesson for any designer almost at any age yeah. um, now is it true that you went on vacation you w- went on a vacation right. while at donovan green mm-hmm. and while on vacation mm-hmm. in california were offered a job at apple computer yeah okay so you go on vacation you're like laddie, dee going back to california yeah. and, like bump into somebody it's like hey i'm working at this really cool computer company want to come work there No,
1: it wasn't quite like that. Do you want to come down and see me? I've got, you know, it's a company called Apple. And at that point, it was Commodore, Atari, the the same difference.
0: And Uh, you thought that they were kind of like in another Atari, Commodore kind of a, yeah.
1: Video game company. And I had no clue. And I went down thinking that, oh, this is, you know, since these companies were in the news for having sort of, out of the ordinary working environment, that they have juice bars and video games <laughs> and what have you. So I just thought, okay, that would be fun to go check it out.
0: But you turned them down. You turned down a job at Apple.
1: Yeah. I sort of went down there, and they gave me a job offer, and I was like, oh, God, I mean, Cupertino? I mean, please. I've am i been very uh, snob, s- snobbish about not being in New York. And it really wasn't until... Uh, coming back to New York, having lunch with my friends. And it was my friend who told me, it wasn't the the founder of this company, wasn't he on the front cover of of Time magazine? And um, and I said, all right, I've got to go check this out. It was only maybe two or three uh, months old, so I was able to find an old copy at at the library. And sure enough, um, and I uh, found out it was Apple Computer. This guy's on the front cover of of, Time. Time Magazine, and there was this thing called Personal Computers, and I was like, hmm, okay. I want to work for someone, that, and once again, learning from someone who uh, made a name of himself doing something really different.
0: So when you called them back and asked if the job was still available, you had a criteria that included working directly with Steve Jobs.
1: Yeah, I did. I mean, that, that, I, I called Tom Souter back. Tom Tom Soudo was the creative director. Yeah, and I was very insistent. Tom, I want to work with Steve Jobs.
0: You were 24 years old. Steve Jobs was only three years older. Yeah. And you went there actually thinking that you didn't think that he would teach you anything about design.
1: Right. Why? Well, I didn't think he would teach me anything about design because he was not a design master. I mean, no one knew he was a design master at that point. Uh, He was just an engineer wearing T-shirts and uh, scruffy jeans, really sort of bad wardrobe. (laughs) Um, (laughs) This, I guess, was before the turtleneck. Before the turtleneck.
0: So what was it like working for Steve Jobs? There's the big question. What was it like?
1: Um, Steve is every bit as mercurial as the media have portrayed him in the press as well as in the books. He is a um, he has a very different point of view of what he wants and what he sees, and you, you basically have to draw it out of his head. He has a, um, a thousand ideas, not all of them good and when you and when he is fixated on, on one idea, you have to convince him why it 's right or wrong, and if you can 't do that then um you're, you're not right.
0: Were you ever able to convince him that something that you thought was right and he thought was wrong was actually right?
1: It took a year and a half before I got there.
0: Well, that's not that long in the grand scheme of things, in the given grand what scheme I've read.
1: Of, right. But it, but, but it also was a, um, a change in my mind as to how to, how to approach um, explaining and defending my, my ideas. I think the first three months, we did—Tom uh, Hughes and myself didn't do anything right. Um, we were called bozos. We were incompetent, and um, we, we, there was nothing that we did that was uh, up to his standards,
0: did you think that you were a failure? Did you think that you'd ever get to a place where you were no longer a bozo? Or did you believe that you actually were or no. weren't a bozo? No,
1: I, I think you, you, you start after three months, you actually have self-doubt. He is, after all, the chairman and CEO of the company and has this idea. And so after three months, we were banging our heads, 15 rounds, 16 rounds of comps. And I think Tom Hughes finally said, you know... Steve, we can't sort of uh, do a guessing game every time we come in. So we need to have a better idea what you think is great design. And um, I don't remember which portfolio exactly, but I do remember um, Milton's, uh, Milton's portfolio, Woody Pertle 's portfolio, and I think it was Ivan Shemayev's portfolio. And um, lay that out and ask Steve, are these great design? And, and Steve's like, nah, really? Nah, yeah, really.
0: Three of the most accomplished designers working then and now. Yeah, and, 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 and no. And,
1: and Steve said, and Steve turned turned to us and said, well, why do you think these are great? And then we started talking about the quality of the work, craftsmanship, insight, and, and all the all, all the the attributes that we thought were great design. And he basically said, yeah, Clement, yeah, but. What I think great design is—that's like okay. Well, waiting. <laughs> it was uh, the Beatles. Okay. So we were just sort of, okay, stunned that it was just out of left field. And, and then he said a pause, and it's like and thought about it and, and said, "It's not the late Beatles; it's the early Beatles." <laughs> okay. So we were just sort of waiting and trying to understand what about this particular period of, of the Beatles that has anything to do with design. And he said, well, it's, it's the raw energy, the verve, the vibrancy of their music that should be the characteristics and the expression of what the Mac is, and that these were true artists. So yeah, that was what he thought great design was.
0: Did you agree with him?
1: We were puzzled. <laughs>
0: <laughs> See, it's funny because I would have thought he would have said the late Beatles mostly because of the artistic experimentation. Mm-hmm. But I guess he was looking more for the, as you said, the energy. Yeah. Um, how did you tra- like? How and you it able- was able?
1: What was the intensity? And then I think there was also another meeting where he kept referencing uh, the restaurant Chow in San Francisco, and we're still like, "Well, what about this restaurant? Is it an Italian restaurant? What part of this that is just sort of..." appropriate for the Macintosh, it's the fe- the feeling of the space and i was like really okay so we did go to chow looked at what what was there and it was a white tile environment and it was a script very casual scripted logo from chow that was it and, and that was what he th- felt appropriate
0: Did you understand that? Did you agree with him?
1: Absolutely not. No idea. (laughs) Absolutely no. And I think we we, we spent a good couple of months mimicking, trying different combinations of all the different white backgrounds, scripted logos. But we really didn't quite understand the thought that technology is an art form. And I think uh, it was Tom Hughes who kind of picked up on this when he was working on a script and hearing Steve Jobs talking about engineers and programmers or artisans. And then at that point, I said, "Okay, so we're really talking about technology as a form of art, and it needs to be expressed as a form of art.
0: After the year and a half that it took for you to gain Steve's respect— what was the sort of tipping point moment where, yeah. wherein that occurred? Like what happened that suddenly gave him a sort of <laughs> pause about your real talent?
1: Well, it's a love-hate relationship. And I think many people who have worked with Steve have, have, had that yeah. Yeah, had that experience. Um, so you do respect the fact that he pushed you to the point that you just sort of go, you, you do your best work for him. But it really was not until I got off of the Macintosh team and I um, had a chance to be on my own and working on Apple's annual report for 1984. And at that point, I basically said, you know, I'm not going to please Steve. I'm going to do what's right. And I'm... um, Because I was not under the MAC division, so in a lot of ways uh, I actually have a little bit more wriggle room in terms of what I can do and cannot do. And I came to the realization, and I think watching how other people got their ideas through, is just to be be very sure that it was a right idea and that you believe in your heart of heart it's the right solution and you tell them why. And he could see that if you're very firm in your belief and that this was the right solution, he'll let it go. And having that experience and going through the approval process with Steve on the annual report, and I was like, oh, (laughs) it doesn't have to be so difficult in guessing what's in Steve's head. It's just that you have to be very passionate and convinced that you are doing the right thing.
0: You've said that working at Apple was very much a postgraduate course in marketing and business for you. Yeah. And that it tested your beliefs about what's good and what's bad. Yeah. How did it help you form your beliefs about what was good and what was bad?
1: Um, The notion what good is is relative to what you know. And since it is a new category, new marketplace, you actually get to set your own rules. So if you're first to market you're first in the category, you get to define the rules of the game. And I think in a lot of ways that really shaped how I would look at a problem. You know, can we reshape the conversation, reframe the conversation in such a way that we can be setting new standards and, and setting new rules?
0: I read an interview where you talked about what you learned from Steve, and you stated, I now know that Steve taught me how to design an idea. Mm -hmm. You design the inside, the outside, and everything around, and God willing, you design what's being said about it. When Steve Jobs used the word design, he was advocating the whole user or brand experience, everything from the hardware, software, communication, advertising, and user experience design He was years ahead in thinking about how design should be and in the process convinced those of us who worked for him back then that we, too, could change the world. And you did, Clement. You really did. Did you have any sense at the time that you were doing this?
1: Not initially. I think it really was after the launch and perhaps the first month after the post-launch that I just said, oh, this is kind of big. <laughs> <laughs> you think? <laughs> yeah, but at the same time, there was also a big letdown at that point, too. Um, and the market took a little while to also really understand what the technology was all about. So I think if you uh, go back to 1985, Apple had a very bad year. The, uh, uh, the sales was off, and um, people absolutely thought the Macintosh was, was a toy, and I think it's looking back that you realize, yeah, this was kind of big. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you worked at Apple from 1982 to 1988, yeah. and you worked on over 1,000 projects mm-hmm. while you were there. And then you left to found your own firm. Yeah. Um, and I read that you said that starting your own business was about following your heart. Mm-hmm. And how so? What did you hope to accomplish?
1: For me, at least at that point in the late uh, late 80s, the most interesting things were really happening in software.
0: When you were 30 when you started your own business. Yes, I did. (laughs) Have you ever worried, Clement? Have you ever been worried about your future or whether or not you were going to be successful?
1: Um, Fear? Absolutely terrified because I sold all of my Apple stock but my first LaserWriter and a Mac all on employee discount. And started my own firm in San Francisco.
0: Three years after you opened the doors to Clement Mock Designs, you had already grown, outgrown your space. Mm-hmm. You were a studio of over twenty people. How did you manage that kind of rapid growth?
1: <laughs> it's called a shoebox. You move <laughs> <laughs> you move money from one box, to the inbox, into the outbox, and. Uh, um, Good boy. Manage would be too polite of a word.
0: And you changed the name of the company from Clement Mach Designs to Studio Archetype. Mm-hmm. From what I understand, within a year of your doing that, your headcount had grown to more than a hundred, and your revenues to more than twenty million. Mm-hmm. What made you decide to change the name, and what catapulted you into that stratosphere?
1: Um, having seen what had happened with the Mac. Being the first player out there, doing the first thing, you get to set the bar, and that was great. And um, I was uh, you know, and I think as a result, I was very addictive to doing new, new software company, new startup companies.
0: I actually remember the the day that I first heard about you selling your company to mm-hmm. Sapient. Mm-hmm. Because you suddenly weren't a designer anymore. You were an entrepreneur and you were a successful entrepreneur in a space that very few designers – were even working in, let alone understood, mm-hmm. so you went from being the CEO of your own company to being the chief creative officer of a brand new organization merged organization
1: an i t company and a, manage, ma- a management consulting company yes. absolutely. yeah absolutely so what was
0: that transition like for oh, you it was uh,
1: well for me personally, it was just uh, it was an amazing learning experience, but it was pure hell for everyone who worked with me There, there was a huge cultural clash between the left-brainers bref- left and the right-brainers of these two companies. And we missed that when we did uh, due diligence.
0: Well, that's also very typical of any type of acquisition. The cultural part is the hardest part. And, and there really aren't a lot of manuals out there for how to survive or, or yeah. navigate that right. type of situation. How long did you stay at Sapient?
1: Um, till 2001.
0: So you took it all the way through the internet yeah, bubble.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Now I, I actually this is this is funny. I read that um after Sapient and during the period of the post Internet bubble you decided you needed a rest yeah. and, and wanted to do something to ground yourself. So you went and became the president of AIGA. <laughs>
1: The largest yeah. professional
0: organization of design in the world. That was a big job to take as a, as a period of grounding yourself. AIJ at that
1: point was an organization and it continues to be an organization Organization in transition. And having been involved with a company like Sapien, dealing with culture and change, um, designers working with technology and uh, the challenges, you know, in the three years that I was uh, with that company, I learned a great deal about change management, and I was like, I wonder if I can sort of uh, shift that learning and trying to draw that out and model that for AHA as an organization.
0: Well, you also created a number of other businesses at that time: CMCD, which is a stock photography company, and Net Objects, mm-hmm. which. Um, it's hard for me to explain what it is, but I guess would the best way to describe it to describe it be a web authoring application? Uh,
1: yeah, I mean the way that we looked at it initially when we started the NetObjects was PageMaker for the web. So you're a bit of
0: a serial entrepreneur.
1: Parallel serial entrepreneur. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you're now a partner in Sugarfish, which mm-hmm. is the collaboration of Kazunori Nozawa, legendary mm-hmm. owner owner of Sushi Nozawa, mm-hmm. as well as the technology and new media entrepreneur Jerry mm-hmm. Greenberg, who is also the co-founder of Sapient. Yeah. So your sort of life has come full circle in many ways. Right. How do you go about? Creating a brand for
1: a restaurant. The goals were pretty audacious. What Cha- were the goals? Changing the way how Americans think about sushi, and I think most people think about sushi as the things that you can get out of the supermarket. Cellophane. In wrapped, cellophane wraps. Nori wraps. Yeah. yeah. Or the things that have cream cheese in there <laughs> and
0: fake meat. Yeah, all all of that yeah. stuff,
1: and. Um, Chef Nazawa was one one of the few chefs in the U.S. that sort of brought this notion of traditional sushi where the, the chef dictates what you have. You don't get an option to order what you like. No one showed up at his place for a good number of months.
0: How did he manage to survive?
1: Uh, stubbornness (laughs) (laughs) and sort of this notion that what he's doing is the right thing and it's the integrity and the principles of um, serving the fish the right way and having respect for the food. So um, in the interim 40 years he had developed a cult following in Los Angeles and he was uh, known as the sushi Nazi in in Los Angeles. He's been known to kick out um, celebrities and people who uh, who are just being rude and dis- disrespectful in the restaurant. So we want to take that as a brand attribute and sort of repackage it in a user friendly version. And that's uh, and it's really taking his style of sushi with a, a softer touch in terms of the user experience. And um, create a um, the the entire experience around the fish eating fish as an as an experience.
0: So it's really bringing together all of your talents over your entire career.
1: A little bit of all of the above, yeah.
0: Um, one of the really extraordinary things about your career is how you have built from one thing to another these successful entrepreneurial, creative endeavors. Mm-hmm. What do you foresee coming next?
1: Follow your heart. <laughs> Follow my heart. Yeah.
0: Clement, your legacy has changed the way we practice and understand design. Thank you for being on Design Matters. Thank you. To learn more about Clement Mock and to watch a TED Talk, visit clementmock.com. I'd like to thank you for listening and remember... We can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
1: Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.